My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a system of self-defense that I developed over two seasons of fighting in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. Rex Quando, we use the buddy system. No more flying solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Say What You Mean. I'm your host, Jeff. I'm your other host, Jake. So what's up going on, dude? <sighs> so you asked me before we, before we record how my week has been. Mm-hmm. It's been a good week um, overall, but I got a speeding ticket. Oh, no. <laughs> I've never gotten a speeding ticket before. Um, so they're always posted up on I-5. Like right near Hazeldale. Oh yeah, or that drops down right there a little right. bit. Right, yep. either either up the hill or down on the yep. other side of the hill. Yep. And I know they're there. Mm-hmm. I always know they're there. Um, but I had this car. I was in the fast lane. I generally speed at least eight miles over. Like yeah. that's my rule. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard from a cop one time. He was like, "If you're going up eight over, like we'll let it slide. It's not that big of a deal." So I've kind of always like gone by that rule. Um. And so I'm in the fast lane, but this car is just riding my ass. And I'm just like, I'm trying to like speed up the hill to like, so I eventually get over. Yeah. But he's just riding me and I can't get over. So you're on the hill, like going up from like 78 going. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. Hill. Okay. So I'm going up, I'm going up. And all of a sudden the car behind me gets over and I'm like, okay, let's go. Boop, boop. And the car just starts waving the cop, police cop starts waving me over. Oh, so it was a cop riding your ass. No, it was a normal car. Oh. Yeah, so he was riding my ass, and then mm-hmm. right when, like, I, like, I look in my mirror, and he gets over, and I'm like, okay, finally, like, now I can slow down and get over. Well, as soon as I look back to the road, the cop was right there waving me over. Oh, no. So I pull over, and, uh, you know, we go through the normal stuff. How I just, fast were you going? I'll get there. Okay. <laughs> He's right, like, I won't rush, won't rush the process. <laughs> He's like, dude, let me paint the picture. All right, okay? all right, all right. So um, I pull over, and he goes, you know your uh, driver's side brake light's out? And I was like, oh, oh, actually, and I had my glove box open, mm-hmm. and I have bulbs for it in there. I've had them for maybe a year and haven't changed it. <laughs> so you know it's been out this entire Duh. time. Oh, my gosh. So I played dumb, and he's like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, I go, I have the bulbs. I just haven't got to it yet. And he's like, oh, okay, perfect. And he goes, I'll be right back. So then he goes, and when I looked down, I had been going eight over. So then when he comes back, he's like, so you were going uh, 13 over. And I was like, oh, gosh, okay. And he's like, but. I'm only ticketing. I'm only giving you a citation for going five over. The citation for five over. So it was a hundred bucks. It could have been much worse <sighs> if it was over ten. So that's where I have my my gripe. Mm-hmm. So the only other ticket I've ever got was from uh, 
one of the the cameras, the speed cameras. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I've never sped. I've never got a ticket from speeding. But it was like coming back from the beach in Tualatin or something. And there's a ton of cameras in Tualatin. Yeah. And I use this app Waze. Do you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, I use Waze and I see that the light's there. Well, I'm turning right at this light and this car runs the red light to turn left. So nobody's going to be coming so I can turn right. Mm-hmm. So... I turned right, but it was red, and I didn't technically stop. And it flashed me, and it got me. And Jen was like, I think they just got you. And I was like, really? For, like, not stopping? She's like, that must be what it is. And I was like, ah. All right. So we wait for the ticket in the mail, and it comes, and it's, like, $365. Holy crap. For not stopping on a red? Yes. So when that cop pulls me over, at his discretion, he chooses... To like, I'll just lower it down to a hundred over or a mm-hmm. hundred bucks for going five miles over. When I was going almost double, triple that. Wait, triple, double, whatever. I was yeah. going fif- almost fifteen over, and he was just like, "Nah, we'll just keep it at. We'll just, I'll just cite you for going five over." Yeah, was he state state patrol or city police? City. Okay. Um, but then with the computer and with the camera, like if that had been a speed trap that caught me, mm-hmm. who knows how much it could have been? Yeah. Ugh. And and so so I have this kind of funny anecdote. So my uh, th- I don't ever really get into Facebook battles or or, or, or in <laughs> you're the, the com- you're the antithesis of me, right? I do sometimes, but not really with strangers. And a few months ago, my buddy posted a story about this guy in England who had continuously been running like these speed cameras and flipping them off. He knew where they were, mm-hmm. and he was just giving them the bird and. But he had like a, a a sensor or some contraption in his car, yeah. so that the cameras couldn't capture him. So he had been hmm. in like evading like the law essentially. Yeah. Well, the article was about how he got sentenced to like eight years in prison for just continuous. It, I wasn't eight. I'm exaggerating. It was maybe like five. But, but that's a long time in prison. Right. So everybody was in the comments was like pissed about. That this guy is going to serve time for breaking these laws. And my argument was that, like, you... Okay. My argument goes to the social contract that you 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 abide by these laws you choose to mm-hmm. um, for the safety of everybody. Yeah. And that this guy was blatantly breaking them, but also flipping off the cameras every time <laughs> he drove by. So, I mean, he knew what he was doing. Yes. And he broke the law, and now he's, you know, so so as soon as I get pulled over and I get this ticket, I'm pissed. Yeah. But then I think about how I'm arguing for <laughs> the guy who's like, dude, you broke the law. Like, just, you, you get what you get. Mm-hmm. So I've been having this internal battle, internal battle of like, you broke the law, just shut up and pay it. And yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's frustrating. I thought I was had the other day. I was just north. I was between um, 99th Street <coughs> and then uh, my climb line where it drops down right there yeah, before yeah. before um, like the exit you take to go to WSU Vancouver if yeah. you're taking on I-5. They always sit right on the other side of – so when you come up over the overpass on 99th right. Street, they always sit on that little – on the downhill slope. Mm-hmm. And, the, and it's always a mo- stator and mo- motorcycle cop. For sure. And I was in the left lane, and I was doing – easy borderline 10 over uh-huh. and she's got her gun right on me and i'm like oh no and i'm like i've had like right. she's got me and she didn't come get me uh. so i don't know 
Maybe it's just my my old crappy truck is just so so nondescript. Because <laughs> right. I've never gotten a ticket for anything. Really? Never gotten a ticket. I've been pulled over twice, but never gotten a ticket. Well, I was driving that pretty flashy orange Honda Element, so yeah, maybe that's what. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. Who knows what yeah. like, what causes certain? But, but but I think for me, if I were to argue this point and this is something i've thought about a little bit too Mm -hmm. nothing i've had to really personally experience because i haven't received a ticket right but i prefer so the i prefer humans giving and and enforcing the law right okay versus a camera yeah that's sitting there watching you it has absolutely no discretion it's not sitting there seeing the context of everything it's a very limited view right and you know a cop sitting there may have seen the person run the red light right. and that, you know, that would may have been distracting. So you didn't, you know, you didn't think to stop really, right. really quick, something like that. You could have like, that could have just, you could have gone on your merry way and never gotten it. You know, never gotten the ticket. Right. I just don't like the surveillance aspect yeah. of, of that. Me neither. So it pisses me off. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, so I think in a way, like your argument is, is right. It's just, right. I guess maybe for me, it's just how I get caught. Or how you get caught right. is a huge component of well, it. Well, and I kind of contradict myself when I'm pissed about that running the red light and getting that massive ticket. And then this guy who's getting citation, getting ultimately caught because of the cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I guess now I just need, I don't want to take his route, obviously, because <laughs> I'm going to get prison. Obviously, it's not yeah. in the U.S., but I don't know. It was. It, I'm glad it was only 100 bucks, but... Still, that's yeah. not a great way to yeah. start your week. When did when did this happen? Wednesday, Wednesday. I think. Oh, and you right know, I, s- I start work at two a.m. Mm-hmm. So by the time I get off, I'm trying to get home, yeah. and that's why. So now I'm like in the far right lane, like going, <laughs> you know, what is it, forty eight miles an hour? Yeah, give it a couple. Give it a couple of months, you'll be back in the left lane for sure. I'm gonna keep ways up like forever. Yeah. Um, how's your week been? Uh, it's been pretty good. Um, I didn't work with my dad yesterday or today, so I'm a little more, way more rested than I. Is he been. out working in this weather? Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's it's terrible. It's out there in the middle of uh, um, oh. it's that Richfield Sports Complex yeah, that's yeah. going in out there, and we're doing all of the concrete work on that. Like right, right mm-hmm. now, we're doing um, we're doing all the foundations for for walls and stuff, and mm-hmm. building like the dugouts because it's a lot of like baseball and softball fields mm-hmm. going in. So we have to cool. We have to stay ahead of the turf. <laughs> Yeah, like being put in, which for sure. like I don't know how you play baseball on turf. Mm-hmm. That's just like sacrilegious. Okay, it's a hot take of mine. Okay, it sh- baseball shouldn't be played on astroturf. It should I be played on dirt. I don't and think grass. it should be played at all. But oh wow, that's a real <laughs> hot take. <laughs> no, um, are they doing courts out there, like basketball courts, or is it just like a complex for like it's going to be like soccer, baseball, softball? Okay, kind of like the one on seventy uh, eighth. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very similar. Cool. Yeah. Like or like Delta Park. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, is it that big? Event. It won't be that big. But well, it's because since Delta Park has expanded with all of those subsequent right, soccer fields, right. it won't be that big. Mm-hmm. But it's pretty dang big. Okay. Yeah. It's it's going to be fairly large. Like there's I think in the in the blueprints there's thirteen thousand yards of concrete oh, that wow. my dad has got to pour. Really? Yeah. Wow. That's cool. So it's hot. Yeah. It's hot. I was working last Saturday. And we were down in the d- one of the d- one of these dugouts, mm-hmm. you know, tying rebar, setting walls for pouring this coming week. And uh, like I look up, and there's this dude jogging 
<laughs> with his dog in the middle of the construction site. And there's holes and there's equipment everywhere, stuff yeah. lying all over the place because we're in the middle. It's middle of the day. We're working. Right. And it's like, well, it's like middle of our day. It's like 10 o'clock by this point. Right. But this dude just comes jogging through our construction site. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, the county has invested millions of dollars in building trails all around Clark County for right. you to go and run on. And you have to run through a construction site, which not even a road. He's it's extreme, literally just, dude. just gravel <laughs> and dirt. Right. And then I, my, I guess my point is, is like, dude, if he falls and trips into one of these holes that we've got everywhere right. out on this field, he's going to sue the company and he's going to sue the city of Richfield. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, go jog on the road. Put warnings, like no jogging. <laughs> well, everything <laughs> is like, it's all gated. Like, right. you, you'd have to go over the gate to get dude, to where we're at. He's I guess extreme. Signs just don't, ma- I guess... <laughs> I don't know. That's working funny. back working back in the construction world, you just see how some some people act. I bet. Like they just think signs don't don't uh you know, don't apply to them. That's funny. But you haven't been working with him? Uh not this, this week. week. I'm working cool. I'm working tomorrow. That's cool. So. Well I worked at Fisherman's all week, but Right. Yeah. Right. Um one so I've been thinking about <laughs> uh I'm gonna call you out on something. It's been a while. Okay. Um <laughs> All right, <laughs> here we go. Uh, no, so you're a fairly, no, you're not fairly. You are a picky eater. Yes, incredibly picky. So picky. Oh, gosh, are we going to tell the story about me at Pe- uh, Petra House? No, I'm not going to oh. tell that story, but now, I mean, we have to. <laughs> um, I feel like Matt should be here for that right. story. Right, we'll let Matt tell that story. Um, but I think I'm the exact opposite as far as, like, I love all food. Mm-hmm. There's a, I there's not a lot that I won't eat. Miracle Whip is at the top of that list. I think. Oh, that's for me too. It's disgusting. I don't know how people eat Miracle Whip. Jen eats it. <gasps> yeah. Ugh. It's just gross. How, do you, how are you guys together? <laughs> I just keep her a little bottle of Miracle Whip oh, in the fridge. Gosh. Don't it's, don't end up with her accidentally grab her sandwich if you're on a picnic. Well, so sometimes she'll like, we'll eat like tuna. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll eat tuna with mayonnaise with relish yeah and then like some saltines mm-hmm. as a snack and great snack she'll do miracle whip with tuna and saltines and so sometimes she'll be sitting there and she'll be snacking on it. i won't be snacking she'll be like do you want some and like just not thinking about it i grab a saltine <laughs> dip oh in and bite gosh, it and i'm, I'm cringing like, just thinking of that <laughs> oh, oh i know God. Dude, terrible it's like when you drink something and you're not you're thinking it's going to be like water or something yeah who did I did that on the man trip. I told somebody it was water and it was tequila and they took a giant drink. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So it wasn't as bad as that. But, I mean, it is because it's Miracle Whip. It's disgusting. Um, so my question for you is, <laughs> if you had to eat three meals for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. what would they be? Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, I want to go... Now, I have an answer for mine uh-huh. that I expect you to say. Okay. But you don't have to. What do you got? You expect me to say. Wow. Okay. Um, chicken strips and fries. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Would be one. Mm-hmm. Um, Not that I don't like chicken strips and fries, but yeah. I love that that's, that's on there. Um, I'm going to go with pizza but only i mean i'm going to be specific about what type of pizza because okay. there's obviously lots of type of pizza right. types of pizza so i can't just say pizza okay so 
sticking with the, the rules and trying to be specific, I'm going to go. I didn't set any rules. What if your meal is pizza, but you can choose any type of pizza for the rest of your life? Okay, well then fine. But I want I I'll just say my two the, the the two types of pizza that I would really only eat anyway, okay. and that is, um, like a pepperoni, mm-hmm. with like Italian sausage on it. Okay. They call it like a Sicilian in yeah. some places, and then um, uh, like a chicken Alfredo pizza. Okay. What are your thoughts on Hawaiian? I'll eat it. Okay. I don't have a problem with pineapple on pizza. Me neither. I don't get this whole like it's a hip, fad. This hipster like pineapple doesn't belong on right. pizza. It's like Bleh. I'm afraid of clowns. Everybody's afraid of clowns. Yeah. Nobody likes pineapple on pizza. Shut it. I know. So I love Hawaiian. Yep. Hawaiian's my go-to. Um, and your third? And my third? Oh goodness. I feel like I should give myself something a little more fancy because I've gone too very just. Um, you don't on have the couch. To. You're thinking eat. like the rest of your life you're gonna eat this. I know. I'm gonna go just a good old fashioned steak. Okay. 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 I, right. I'm guessing I didn't hit the you one didn't. you expect me to say. If <laughs> what is something now? This isn't the answer. I'm just thinking about it now. But what is like a fancy food? Like if Jake's gonna get something fancy. Something fancy, huh? Yeah. Like you're going out on a limb. You're mm-hmm. gonna have a special night. What am I getting? Yeah, what are you getting? I don't know, something like a sixteen ounce like porterhouse steak. Oh, okay, some yeah. steak. Okay. Yeah. Um so I have three as well. Okay. Um my first answer is the answer that I expected you to give. Okay. At least in your top three. This is something that I've been eating, I'm not joking, every other day. Maybe like not only like have I gone out like Jen and I went to the beach last mm-hmm. weekend. I had two of them while we were at the beach. I've bought all the stuff to make them at home, and it's a club sandwich. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, oh my gosh. How did yeah. I? How did I miss that? Shame on you. Can I go back and I want to <laughs> drop chicken strips and uh, add my club sandwich. I eat club sandwiches so often, I don't even think about them anymore. Me too, Just basically dude. how I inhale them. Mm-hmm. I just basically inhale in club sandwiches. That's all I eat. So, do you like your clubs toasted? Yes. Okay. So, I don't not order them toasted. I order them as they come yeah. when I go somewhere. Mm-hmm. But when I make them at home, I don't toast them, and I like mm. it. Yeah. Okay. What kind of bread are you using? So, I've been buying these, um, like, Kaiser rolls at Safeway. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Those are good. That's a good. That's a so good, good sturdy bread for a for a club. And oven roasted turkey. Okay. Sliced tomatoes, All lettuce. Right. Um, I put cheese on there. Some people don't. I do. Um, and of, honestly, kind of cheese you I don't know What's if your this go-to cheese cheddar okay. or Colby Jack. Colby Jack. That's a very underrated cheese. Yeah, it is. A lot of people don't go Colby love Jack. It. It's a good, great mixture between pepper jack and Colby Jack. Yeah. Wait. Wait. Nope. Oh, there's like a, so there's a blend. Have you ever right. had Colby pepper jack? No. Okay. Never See, mind. I, That's oh, what I'm yes, of. I have, but I don't like it. Oh, I like just okay. Colby jack. Just Colby jack. Okay. Um, and I never really liked it, but Jen's mom would always get it. Okay. And whenever like I eat like a burger there that she's made, and she, I've used the Colby jack, I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. So now I'm a huge fan of that. So that's okay. my cheese. Now this might be a little blasphemous, but. So when I go out, I just order them as they come. Mm-hmm. At home, I use turkey bacon. Okay. It's freaking bomb, dude. I haven't tried it that way, oh. but I'm definitely open yeah. to it. So tell me a little bit about Jake's clubs and jellies. Oh, here it comes. 
And now you have to tell the story in shame because you didn't name clubs. Okay. Well, so here's how in love with club sandwiches that I am. My dream, if I don't you know, make it to the State Department or I don't ever become anything super fancy as a history degree, my fallback option is to start a, cl- uh, start a sandwich shop called Jake's Clubs and Jellies. Mm-hmm. And it's basically how I have this whole thing set up is that I have clubs that are already like I'll have like six or seven eight different clubs that are like pre-made a certain way like on the menu you thinking on like the, jimmy john's yes kind of status mm-hmm. okay exactly like because I, th- I think what happens with like subway and why i think subway has such a hard time or why people get so frustrated with subway is yeah there's so many choices you have and a lot just, of gripes with subway. And it just slows everything <laughs> down right so you do you limit the amount of choices you can take things off but this is the way this this is the way that that club comes and you offer enough different types of clubs uh-huh. that most people will be able to find something close to what they want and then they can make minor but minor strictly changes. clubs no okay the other half of it is jellies no but i'm saying for like jams. for the the meat sandwiches it's all clubs but different yes. variations of clubs, of clubs yes. okay uh-huh so like i'd have like the jack of all trades that's okay. a, that's one that'd be one sa- like menu sandwich right and that would be a club but with pepper jack okay or like a club with Colby Jack. You get to pick your type of cheese that okay. you want, okay. but it's going to be all centered around like a Jack cheese. Okay. And I think the the meat I would would be roast beef and oven roasted turkey. Okay. With your choice of either Colby Jack or pepper Jack cheese, lettuce, tomato, and then bacon. And the choice of bread. I don't know. I haven't decided yet okay. on the bread or not. <laughs> I'm a huge component. I'm a huge proponent of sourdough. Right. In um like you can buy those like those Seattle um I forget the exact name of it but they come in like those pre-cut loaves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you can like two of them cut them in half like you lay two on top of each other you build your sandwich cut it in half and like that's a perfect size sandwich right, right. and then pairing it my person I don't know how you feel about pairing with chips okay but for me it's like it's gonna be like a kettle cooked barbecue chip okay for me, that's like my go-to chip or like either like the Hawaiian barbecue where it's Ooh. a little t- little tangy yeah or like a mesquite barbecue if you're, if you're you know, pairing it with more of like a sharp cheddar mm-hmm. that works really well mm-hmm. so the other half of my of Jake's clubs and jams or Jake's clubs and jellies you keep saying jams and I'm starting to be I've Did always I say jams you I, always, said, I didn't say I didn't say you anything always, this time. And you always tell me to call it jams. No, you said you wanted to call it jellies, uh-huh. and Matt and I told you that if we were going to be investors, you have to call it jams, and it's got to <laughs> you got to play music all the time. All the time. I don't yeah, remember I think what we were cool. saying. Oh, Jake's clubs, mm, jams, mm, jams with, with a Z. A Z yeah. um, no, but no, actually, the reason we said jams is because we hate jellies. Mm-hmm. I love jams. Do you know that, like in England, they don't differentiate, and they think we're weird for differentiating between jams and jellies. I mean, there's kind of a huge difference. I would say so too. Ugh. Yeah. So, whatever. but that's Weirdo when I pointed people. that out. I think you were like, "Oh crap!" No, it makes sense because you like jam. I do like jam. But do you like jelly? I mean, I'll eat it. <laughs> yeah. I think jam is better though. So we're gonna club Jake's clubs, clubs and jams. But you were gonna call it <laughs> Jake's Clubs and Jellies? Yes, it doesn't make any sense. Club and jams kind of makes like, makes sense, right? It's like, like a club uh, and yeah, you're jamming. Exactly. Got it. So that's where the customization comes into. I want to have like basically a peanut butter and jelly sandwich bar mm-hmm. set up almost Subway style, where you pick what I want to have every type of berry like, jam that you can think of, mm-hmm. like boysenberry, blackberry, marionberry, yeah, you know, strawberry, raspberry, whatever. What kind of side would that come with? That's a good question. Fruit? You could do fruit or yeah. chips. 
yeah. I think it would have like apple slices as like a, or celery and peanut butter. I think would work really well. Right. Um, so why why does that get the Safeway or Subway treatment? Because but you're not putting any sort of like other than the having like banana like oh, some people are putting like sure. banana, other than having like a very few amount of additional like the, the problem with Subway is not picking your meat. Right. The problem with the Subway is when you get to the when you get to the um vegetables the vegetable side right. of it that takes forever because you get the dudes with more pickles. I think it's more of that. I just ask for extra like. Boom, 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 boom. Lettuce, tomato, all those pickles. Extra you are pickles. not the average person. Okay, They're guess. the worst. <laughs> Kylie used to Kylie used to manage a Subway. Uh-huh. So like I've I have I sp- I have spent way too much time in Subway. I love Subway. I, I mean I do it. I do too. I like Subway, but they're you just Jimmy, hate Subway lines. Jimmy John's has the perfect like the perfect business setup model. business so you're model stealing it. for. For business man, business model for ordering sandwiches in our society. Right. Okay. <laughs> yes. I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. So brick and mortar or like food truck? See, this is where me and my dad have had a conversation because mm-hmm. he wants to do a food truck. I think food truck would be money. You think so? I think it. Would I've always be wanted brick and mortar because then I can like decorate it the way I want to. Like I have like a history theme. I always yeah. want to have like a history theme. Like a gif of like decapitated Hitler or something. Okay. Yeah. All right, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um. So you wanted, but you could decorate your your my food truck. Yeah, yeah. It would be cheaper. I don't know how about like maintenance, but for sure, um, you could like get hired on at events and like yeah, I don't know. Yeah, brick and mortar would be would be more expensive, right? And, and food trucks be, are hot right now, dude. Food trucks are super hot. There was some like they they get set up in the most random places and become still become super successful. For sure, my buddy just he just invested in one and started one down in Salem. Um, it's called It's a Pasta, and it's basically like mm-hmm. Subway style, but pasta. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they put a bunch of money into it, but they seem to be doing all right. I mean, look how look how um, oh, it's a food truck though. Yeah. Okay. I was gonna say like just the whole like customization thing. Like, look how um successful like Pyology and Mod Pizza is. Like, you can go to Mod yeah, Pizza yeah. at any time, and like, there's a line out the door. Oh, for it's sure. Ridiculous. Yeah. So what you could do that like I know that uh, what's that soup or no that cup, what is that food truck, where, in Vancouver, the Wiener Wagon? <laughs> no, I know yeah, that I lo- one. I love the Wiener Wagon. The freaking cup. They catered my sister, my brother-in-law's wedding. The cup? Yeah, they got the little freaking. Oh, the Mighty Bowl. The Mighty Bowl. There you go. Bowl. Yeah, they're they're on Clark. Anyways. Campus. So they've opened a brick and mortar since. Mm-hmm. So you could always do that. Yeah, start as a truck, open up a brick and mortar. You and you and your dad talked about it. Yeah, because he's always like my dad wants to retire from concrete and start his own like his own hot dog stand, his own like food mm-hmm. truck thing, and he's got like a really good idea, um, for like what he wants to do. Right. And I was like, with that, we'll just go into we'll just go into business together. We'll do Jake's clubs and jams, but mm-hmm. you run the f- you know like you run the food truck, but he wants to do hot dogs and like easier stuff i was thinking about that i love phallic foods <laughs> <laughs> i really do yeah. i googled it today i was like phallic foods and like bananas and hot dogs and popsicles and mm-hmm. cucumbers and pickles yeah they're all delicious yeah to me i don't know for sure hate everything like well his idea is to set up um like on uh have a bunch of different food carts uh-huh. and during fishing season mm-hmm. set up in the morning and then in the afternoon 
at the at boat ramps. Mm. And you so you sell like coffee and donuts in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then have like, you know, some extra fishing tackle mm-hmm. or like, you know, whatever, like bait, stuff like that. I don't know how That's getting a little too far. Cause then what are you gonna do? Have like hot dog flavored donuts? Well, you you <laughs> you do hot dogs in the afternoon. No, I know. I'm yeah. I'm joking, but like I think that once you I think what you, with your plan, what works is that you you know, yeah, like just what jams I, and clubs. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Boom. And with that, it's like, well, you can sometimes get hot dogs. You can sometimes get donuts. Mm-hmm. Depends on the day. Yeah, or See, time of day. Yeah, well, I mean, then so back to the 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 jams part of my business model. Is you also get a customization of what type of uh, of peanut butter you want, right? You know, you get you know the creamy, crunchy, and then if you're a Nazi, you go super crunchy, right? Also, because we're recording this, this is patented, mm-hmm. so do not steal this. If I see Jake, if I see clubs and jams or anything <laughs> like it out there, I am coming for you. We will burn you. Yep. Okay, so go ahead with your jams model. But that's it. Oh. I mean, I just like you know the customization of the of the clubs and jellies because it's at the, at at its most it's not going to be that complicated because you just pick one type of jelly, your peanut butter, you want white or wheat bread, mm-hmm. and you simple. Go, I simple. like it. Yeah, I like it. It's customization. It's customizable enough that you don't just like you're not just ordering a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and right. it comes with just whatever jelly that that company sells. Right. It's like, well, I want Marion Berry with crunchy Skippy peanut butter. Right. That's you not can do like. Hard local homemade jam yeah I, w- I was definitely thinking like you know local locally grown like you know get the marion right. like oregon you know marion berry so i love it i'm in perfect <laughs> if we don't do anything else we'll have a podcast and a sandwich shop mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um so what did you want to talk about today well, we can keep going with. Uh, you said you had some food stuff. You I wanted do. To keep talking about. <laughs> we can keep doing that. Um, uh-huh. I wanted to maybe talk about because uh, I feel like we haven't gotten into we 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 call ourselves we we graduated with our de- with our degrees in history, right? And we haven't really ever talked that much about history. We've gotten really into you know international relations, you know yeah. politics and stuff, but we haven't really gotten into history per per se. So we can either you know put we can shelve that for. For next week, and no, we can no, talk no. About let's food. let's do both. I don't okay. care. We'll talk sure. about whatever. Let me continue on my my food spiel. Let's go, let's go with food. All right. So you and I kind of talked a little bit after we recorded last week. We had a conversation. We had a long conversation about the purpose of the podcast, and mm-hmm. and but also we got into um, kind of social issues. Okay. You know what's interesting? So I googled just social issues in 2018. A lot of them are pretty hot-button issues. Oh, yeah. So I didn't want to go too extreme. But one thing that I did kind of mention to you um, has to do, it is cultural appropriation. Okay. Now, I don't want to get into these other areas of cultural appropriation. There are some examples that totally make sense. What I would like to talk about is one that I don't, I just either completely disagree with or maybe I just don't understand. And maybe you have a perspective or okay. maybe you're going to agree with me. Sure. Um, but I want to start off by saying the f- my favorite history course that I ever took, and I've always said this, mm-hmm. is food history. That's so interesting to me. And I have two, I have two books right here I in my hand. I was taught by Goucher, right? Yeah. Okay. And I have her book, Kongate 
Congote, A Global History of Caribbean Food okay. by Candace Goucher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then How Food Made History. And this is one of my favorite books. Okay. Who's um, the author of that? Uh, B.W. Higman. Okay. Um, Those were both assigned in her class? Yeah. Okay. So what I loved about it was you're looking at global history and through food. That's such a cool lens to view things. Oh, my gosh, Jake. It's so – it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I loved it so so much. I got to write a paper, a two-page paper about why pickles come with sandwiches and where <laughs> that started and That's, how the wow. history of that. I wrote an eight-page paper on uh, tamales mm-hmm. and the history of tamales. So real quick, why are pickles paired with sandwiches? So from what I understand and what I wrote in my paper was that um, in the early 20th century in the, on the East Coast, um, there were a lot of East Coast of the United States? Yes, okay. sorry. Let me, yeah, okay. Um, there were a lot of sandwich shops opening, and a lot of them were ran and operated by the Jewish community. Okay. And they were, like, crushing, making pickles, and they wanted to find a way to, like, sell their pickles. So they started, like, adding a slice or, like, a, a spear of their pickles mm. with their sandwiches okay. to kind of entice people to also buy maybe a jar of their pickles. Okay, that is super interesting because you can't order a club sandwich anywhere without getting a slice of a pickle. Right. Even at uh, WSU Vancouver, you right. order their their uh, their turkey club and you get a slice of a pickle. Right. Yeah. And I I went and I think that's we were having lunch one day and I was like, why did these always come with pickles? And that's kind of what stemmed huh. that interest. Wow, that's so fascinating. Um, so I mean, and then you look at like the history of spices and salt and you know oh, trade yeah. networks and it was just so so interesting. Um, and I, I'm just such a fan of different foods. I never finished my list of foods. Oh crap. <laughs> yeah. We want clubs. And then <laughs> Sorry. We got <laughs> off on clubs. So number two is, uh, heroes, euros, 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 love them. Mm. Can always eat them. Okay. You're not a fan. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. Um, I don't eat them that often, but I do love them. I honestly love like Middle Eastern food in general. Um, shawarma and I just love it all. It's delicious. You're not a fan. No, but <laughs> didn't, what did you order when we took you to that restaurant? You got, I don't even know, but I was, it would, it came with cucumbers and what they called yogurt. And I'm like, I'm not putting yogurt on like a, it's basically what's it's a sandwich and a tortilla. Dude, it's delicious. Mm, I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> and then my third meal to always eat. Uh, is teriyaki chicken with rice. Ah, that's a good one. I freaking love it. Like itchy teriyaki. Yes. So bomb. Um, have you ever paired that with sriracha sauce? No, I think I have in the past. Okay. Like put a little bit mm-hmm. on top. Um, I don't do it enough. I'm going to try it next yeah, time. It's worth it. I'll do it again. Um, so anyways, what I was going with that is I love like these international foods and um, one of the assignments in that food history class was to go to that restaurant, and that's why we went, the three of us, me, you, and Matt, mm-hmm. because Matt knew of that place. It was a Middle Eastern restaurant in Vancouver. Um, wh- so I think it's classified as a Middle Eastern restaurant, but I think the people there are Mediterranean. It's Mediterranean. That's yeah. what it is, because so I was going to say yeah, they're they Moroccan. Like, yeah, they they blend a whole bunch of different countries. Right. Like dishes. That makes sense. Well, I do like... 
Mediterranean food. Mm-hmm. I've watched Food Network, and they have like Mediterranean. I mean, the way they they create their food and meals look a little sketchy. Like they'll just make it out of whatever they fish that day, and sometimes it's like the bottom of the sea kind of <laughs> stuff. <laughs> Which I think when sometimes it's like goat milk, and like they just make random things. I would love to go there and try it, like from the people. But anyways, um, so the assignment was to. It was a discussion on authenticity, okay. and it was looking at how authentic these restaurants can be in the United States. Sure. These um, foreign foods in the United States, and, 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 and writing and looking at how like different foods are supplemented, different spices are supplemented, okay. so is it truly authentic? So what my bone to pick with is... There's this, uh, is with, there's this like conversation happening and it's been happening, I think for the last year or two about cultural appropriation in food. Okay. Yeah. You brought this up when we were talking last week. So yeah. I'm interested in your take on this. So, um, I looked up some articles and I was reading some articles on it Okay. and the big one that I was touching on with you last week when I brought it up was I said that there was this white dude mm-hmm. who was cooking Mexican food and he was and I broadly knew what I was talking about I'd only heard about it and he was cooking Mexican food and he was getting attacked for being a white dude who cooks Mexican food kind of like Woody's tacos downtown right kind of thing All so right. I did some research on it and this chef his name is Rick Bayless and he's considered America's premier expert on Mexican food um He's a white guy from Oklahoma, and in 2010, President Felipe Calderon visited the White House, and Bayless was invited to cook the state dinner. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Right. So- Real quick side note, Oklahoma has great Mexican food. Really? I have family there, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. So, this dude has been all throughout Mexico. Mm-hmm. Like- Every little town and city, not I'm exaggerating obviously, but he's gone throughout Mexico and studying different ways that people cook. Um, and to and he's getting like backlash for being this white dude who cooks Mexican food. Who's he getting backlash from? Well, so I know that like NPR posted an article that was like, Hey, here's this dude who cooks Mexican food, and there are people it's our outrage culture that you and i sometimes talk about it's white people saying that he's a white guy cooking mexican food or is there actually pushback coming back from the the mexican community oh really okay well so in the in what i was reading is that his not his argument people arguing for him were like there are second and third generation mexican americans Mm -hmm. who are getting upset about this and i would say as it's, see, it's an interesting position for me because I read an article about passing as white. It was from an Asian dude who can pass as white, but he has, like, uh, I think it was Vietnamese um, heritage. Okay. And and he had a Vietnamese restaurant, and he was cooking in this restaurant, and but he looked like a white dude, and he says he's never really felt, you know, his place in either world. But in being able to cook Vietnamese food, he obviously identified with that culture and those people. Sure. Um but then also felt insecure because he looks like a white dude cooking Vietnamese food. Um, but the argument that I read was that, like, these th- second and third generation Mexican-Americans may not know how to cook or may not be experts in Mexican food. 
as this white dude is, who studied and researched and worked to become an expert in Mexican food. In Mexico. In Mexico. Yeah. It's just so bizarre to me. So then I Google this article. I Google, you know, um, I think cultural appropriation in Mexican food. And there's this freaking Washington Post article titled, Should White Chefs Sell Burritos? A Portland Food Cart's Revealing Controversy. So this these guys had this food cart and two white women were shamed into so is white women sorry two white women were shamed into shutting down their pop-up burrito cart after telling a reporter that they had picked the brains of every tortilla lady in Puerto Nuevo Mexico so th- from that example it's like these women went through a town and they were talking to these mexican women kind of picking their brain on their food and their culture and then bringing it back to Portland. And this is a Washington Post article that I thought was interesting because it specifies Portland. Yeah. And just in the article, they talk about how voodoo donuts is cultural appropriation of like voodoo. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, uh, it, it's profiting off religion thought to combine African Catholic and Native American traditions. So the only people who can even mention voodoo now are people who live in like Louisiana, like, no, or or like I guess in in the Caribbean, yeah, where voodoo, yeah. That's what I just I just so as a fan of food and the celebration of, and and taking a course and looking at how food has influenced the world. This 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 r- narrative of cultural appropriation to me is just so bizarre. Mm-hmm. I get mocking different people and cultures through like Halloween costumes and how that can be offensive or, or different other scenarios. You know, I can understand that argument, but for this, I, especially with that, that chef, that expert chef, I just don't get that. I don't either. And that, I mean, that's the <laughs> real hot take there, Jake. I don't right. agree with it. Right. I, it, but it is, it's, it's frustrating because it's assuming that culture is, is static Right. In a way, like culture never changes and has never been, um, you know, it's never been combined and influenced mm-hmm. by other cultures. And like none of the cultures that we see today is, you know, is is any is um is has been static or created in, in a vacuum. Right. Right. Everything we speak, our language has been brought in, you know, English language has been brought in by, you know, different types of German and French and mm-hmm. how many different, you know, Anglo tribes in throughout England. And, and it's it's just it's ri- it's ridiculous to say that, you know, a white person can't cook Mexican food in their own in their own way or right. if they're in their or if, if in their own way or if they're experts in studying actual traditional right. Mexican, um, you know, food in, in the traditional Mexican culture. I just find that I kind of find that whole argument ridiculous well and you could even say like so as a historian i know that one of the the main latin american historian professors at um, psu is a german dude Mm. so yeah i mean do we frown on that no i mean i the most i've ever in the most i've ever um learned about mexico from in my education was um the craziest looking white dude ever named (laughs) dr russell I mean, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and he spent time in Mexico. He he knows Mex the Mexican like social, um, you know, social programs right. and stuff like like you know, religiously. Like he he studied that throughout his whole entire life. He's written books on it. Right. Does that make him? 
does that mean we should just stop reading or stop um, taking what he says, you know, seriously because he's white writing about Mexico? Like, well, and the argument is that these people are profiting off of the culture of these places. I. <laughs> I don't know, dude. I like. It, are they are they arguing that from like a neo-colonial like? I think so. Aspect. I think so. Gosh, I. I don't know. Like reading about what colonialism actually was and taking a lot of different right. classes about colonialism, I don't see that. But as what about neo-colonialism and the different ways that that happens? I mean, I could I know some arguments and like I've written papers about like how. Different tactics. I've argued that there are different tactics of colonialism through like education systems. Sure. Um, in like Africa and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I can see that, but I, I just don't. I think I can't see a chef going out of his way thinking I can make money by exploiting this food and culture. There's got to be a, you know what I mean? There's a passion yeah. there, there's an interest there. You're, you he have likes a d- the food. Right, you, but also you have a desire to be an expert in something. For sure. I, I, as a student and as someone who loves learning, mm-hmm. I can't imagine being shamed for having an interest in something. That's such a good point. You know? Yeah. Like, when I first started studying history in, at WSU, I, I took a... Um, I was taking U.S. history. Uh, it was the one with Fountain. Okay. Um, I don't remember the it's, time frame. Uh, pre-colonial contact to uh, to the end of the Civil War. Okay, okay. And so I was taking that class at the same time that I was taking African American literature, and we were looking at literature written by slaves, but also you know f- freed men, and then to mm-hmm. contemporary times. Sure. But just I was so interested in African American history. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Now I didn't want to become an expert in it, but but I was so into it, and I loved it, and I enjoyed it, and I celebrated it. Um, and there are people who are white who have interest in becoming experts in that field. Mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. I would think that that would be welcomed by that, those cultures because it's bringing right. more people into awareness that can become advocates for that particular culture. Right. I mean, this guy who's an who's a expert at cooking Mexican food. Yeah. He's not, I mean, I don't know him. I don't right. know, but I don't think he's probably racist or bigoted towards his, towards, you know, the Latino community. Right. I, his response, he had a response to like some of the NPR articles. Um, Rick Bayless is his name again. But um, he was basically saying like, if you have gripes with my food and the way that I'm cooking, like by all means, let me know. I'll take that criticism. But if you're going to criticize me for being a white dude cooking Mexican food, like I just... He was he was obviously annoyed by that, but yeah. I think that's a fair argument. It is fair. I don't know. I've just been seeing more and more, hearing more and more things. He, that specific chef was the one example that I had heard. But then when I opened that Washington Post article, that was from I think May twenty sixth, two thousand seventeen, mm-hmm. um, and it specified Portland and just this because I f- when I think of Portland, I think about the v- there's a vast like. There are so many options for food there. There's like, um, I think for that assignment that I was telling you about, the class went together, but we didn't go. Me and Matt didn't go, but it was to a Ethiopian restaurant. Okay. Like there's so many different kinds of like international food options there. But now it's unless you're from that place or that's another th- argument that 
uh, Bayless made was he was like, wait, wait. So if my like great great grandmother was Mexican, then nobody would be, you know. He was asking like, would yeah. anybody bat an eye if that was the case? Mm-hmm. So as a half Mexican dude, I I pass as white. I look like a white dude. I think so. If I started a Mexican restaurant and someone chose to question that, now I I think it's racist for me to have to say like, well, actually, my dad's Mexican. Yeah. I I, I don't know. It's so weird to me. That is so strange. It's just, it's not something I even think about. Right. But it's obviously prevalent out there. Well, and the article said that, um, well, when you walk into a, a Vietnamese restaurant or a, a Japanese restaurant and you see a white cook, do you walk right out? What? That is weird. Is the food good? Uh, that's my thing. Like, if it tastes good, dude, I'm going to stay. Yeah. Ew, it's so freaking weird, dude. I don't know. I just, it's got me fired up. I was like getting, I was like pacing before you got here because I was reading all <laughs> these stupid articles about people being mad about this. But I think that if, if anything, food to me, and maybe it's because of that class, but mm-hmm. it's a celebration. And we talked about like, wh- what do you do when you eat food? You're with friends, you're with family. It's, it's a very social event. So for me, I can't understand how that doesn't create cross-cultural interactions. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? For sure. Like when I bring or when I have a, a Asian friend who brings me to a Vietnamese place and we eat their food that they're used to where their mom cooks for me, that's, a f- that's an experience and a celebration of food mm-hmm. with friends and yeah. culture. Yeah. <sighs> I don't... There are areas of appropriation. Right. This is absolutely. One. This is not one of them. I just don't get it. I, I think it's I think it's people just being mad to be mad. Is this is the one one of the cases that blatantly says like that's outrage culture. Like, dude, calm down. Like, now if somebody said like I'm just gonna make Mexican food because I can capitalize on it. Well, I see how that could maybe be argued. But Taco, Taco Bell. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That was my. That was my. Ending to my um, uh, to my um, tamale paper mm. was like this Americanization of 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 food of Mexican food, like the Dorito taco. Yeah, right. Like that's oh not something you're gonna <laughs> find. In, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I find it funny that they choose to pick on you know a food cart in Portland or this guy who runs his own mm-hmm. you know independent company in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. but. I think he's in Chicago now, Chicago. but he's from okay, Oklahoma. Okay. Yeah, but you're not going after the the Del Tacos and the Taco Bells. Thank and you. Like if you're okay, if you're going to equally do that, then right. I think you got more of a leg to stand on. I'm still gonna. I still think you're probably wrong. Right. But at least you're at least you're being. It's almost like they know they can shame a food truck in Portland right. who's owned by two you know two women independently. Yeah. And actually see like a tangible like like they can actually see their whining go somewhere. Right. Because then they see that shut down. Right. You're not shutting down Taco Bell. So no they way. Don't even, so they don't even try. Right. That's Goliath. There's no way you're taking that down. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. I'm fiery and passionate about this. It's so annoying. Yeah, I can I tell. I freaking love food. It, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Why can't we just all eat? Right. I mean, and not, I mean... It's just bizarre. It's a bizarre attitude. It's a bizarre point to come from. Um, so does the United States own McDonald's? Like, so if I go to China and I see 
a Chinese guy working <laughs> in a McDonald's, I'm like, oh, you guys are serving hamburgers. That's a that's a, you're you're appropriating American culture. No, because apparently it's only if it's independent. So if you see a dude cooking burgers on the side, okay. shame on him. Gotcha. Yeah, he's yeah he's cooking a steak. Right with a, with a cowboy hat in in Tokyo, Japan. Like well, that's I mean, cultural appropriation. I don't know. Where does the cooking of steak originate? For sure. I mean, you know uh, what I mean. Yeah, well, who knows? You can get down yeah. this massive rabbit hole of like pasta. Pasta in in Italy and Europe did not include tomatoes until the discovery of the Americas. That's so fascinating. And now it's synonymous. Yeah. Should yeah should every potato dish then be appropriating Irish culture? Right. Yeah, <sighs> even though potatoes actually didn't come from, actually that's bad history. Potatoes didn't actually originate in in Ireland. They were brought from the New World. I think I knew that. Yeah, yeah. I think we did that. But I mean, I think that I think that's a good example. I mean, right there with potatoes and tomatoes. Mm-hmm. You, these these it's a, tomato is a staple food of pasta now, but it's not from there, and it's from the Americas, and it was cooked here, and and. You had these salsas and these, you know what I mean? And now you bring them over and now it's, is that cultural appropriation? No, because it's been hundreds of years, mm-hmm. right? Is that yeah. the answer? Yeah. Is that the argument? <sighs> Deep breath. <laughs> I Deep know, breath. I know. Anyways, I don't really have an answer. I My answer is just that. Well, we I don't think we've ever tried to have answers. I know. So. I just, I'm annoyed by it. I don't think it's. It doesn't make any sense to me. I think that there should be a celebration of food. Um, I do think it is a social. Um, I think eating is a social event. I think that everybody should sit down with friends and family, enjoy a good meal, regardless of who cooks it. And as long as the food's good, keep going back or keep making it, keep enjoying it, keep celebrating it. My Oh, I got to throw this in at the end. My mom is a white woman. Probably makes the best tamales I've ever eaten. Really? Yes. Oh, I love tamales. Oh, she's oh, they're so good. I always want her to make them. I never ask her to, but because like they're kind pork, of pork or chicken, chicken, chicken. Um, okay. but they're a lot of work, mm-hmm. obviously. Oh, but a ton of work, yeah. uh, I need to just ask her to make me some because they're yeah. so bomb. One of the wives of the uh, of one of the guys I work with, mm-hmm. his they make she makes tamales and mm-hmm. brings them out every once in a while. Mm-hmm. They're so good. You know, I I remember as a kid with my dad, like we would just be out in the in the backyard, and he would just be grilling carne asada, and he would just be like marinating in like Budweiser, and just like <laughs> just you know yeah, like whatever. tenderizing the meat, mm-hmm. and like I mean that's a good memory to have around food, and that's you know people have been doing that for hundreds of years, and when you can introduce a new kind of food for somebody else to celebrate. And if somebody wants to become the master of that, I just yeah, I, c- I celebrate that. Mm-hmm. I think that's rad. Um, now again, like you said, I think when care is being put into it, almost right. like in an art, right? right? Like you're you're pre- Ooh, you're, pre- well you're preparing it your own your own way. And what is, I don't know, what's cultural culturally appropriation about that? Right, it's terrible language, but right. yeah, I don't. Um, I just I don't get it. Right. And I just I don't I don't get the outrage other than I think they just as you've said, they just want to be outraged. Right. Something to to virtue signal over. Okay. You know, yeah. look at me. I'm standing up for regardless of who yeah, it is. The hero I'm that no one asked for. Right, right. <laughs> Anyways, that's all I had for that. Um No, it's a good that was a good discussion. Yeah. I, I 
I I loved your <laughs> I loved your fire. Yeah, that was awesome. Sorry. No, right. no, you're on a roll, dude. <laughs> what do you got, dude? Well, how much time? We Who cares? Okay, whatever. All right, we're going. Yeah. Okay, so I thought you know we've we haven't really talked about what it means to be a historian on this podcast. Right. Like, I think when when our understanding our understanding of what it, okay so yeah we're undergrads in history like right. we're not PhDs right. by any means but. I think we do have an understanding of what the historical process is, how you do historical writing, um, and why it's in, you know why the discipline in itself is important. I think we can get into almost kind of like a micro, top, you know, using our topics from our senior papers mm-hmm. to kind of show to tell our audience and show our audience what you know goes into historical writing, mm-hmm. so that it's not just um, you know. So when people attack academia mm-hmm. in the media. You know, as we're all a bunch of just a, you know liberal indoctrinated right. students, that there's there is a sci- almost a scientific process that goes into the construction of these arguments in these papers, and, and it's using, you know, it's using time, it's using documents from the time in which we're writing. So it, we're we're uncovering, you know, we're uncovering certain perspectives that n- may not have been you know brought to the forefront uh, right. until now, and I think that's real always a really fun. For me, the, the one of the most exciting things about being a history student, right? I think that I think more specifically when we did, when we talk about this, we mean like the liberal arts. Yes. Um. And I agree. I think that I I don't think unless you've you've been through that and you understand the analysis of those documents, mm-hmm. the emphasis that I've had throughout my education at WSUV has been, and one thing that I've always tried to just be conscious of, whether it's analyzing and deconstructing documents in history or English when I do literature, mm-hmm. is it's, it's you can't, or you can, I guess, it depends, but, you know, it gets, it gets real, there's a thin line when you're interpreting intent, but also when you're you have to always consider your own bias yes. and your contemporary yes. bias. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I, I wonder how much I know. Actually, I don't know this, but I'm just I'm just thinking out loud about how this negativity towards the liberal arts and how we're indoctrinated and stuff. You know, do they consider that we are considering our own biases? No, they don't. Yeah, they don't. I think that that's a, such a big misconception. Right. For sure. Um so I, th- I think we, d- I don't know, if, if, you've, if you want to get just jump into this, mm-hmm. I would maybe just introduce introduce your topic, and I got a kind of series of questions, or we can just go back and forth, just okay. you know, going back and forth with our topics. Um, I, I want to, s- I will say that I don't think that, I think that the work and the research that I did mm-hmm. in that paper was the strongest research that I've done. Yeah. Um, I don't think that my overall argument was completely fleshed out the way that I wanted to. We were kind of like hammered through that oh, project. Definitely, definitely. Um so if this was a s- topic that I had a year to spend on mm-hmm. and that was my primary focus, I would r- I would have really got to flesh out my argument. Yeah. Um but as I was going through primary documents, I started discovering new ways to make my argument mm-hmm. um that I finally wanted to argue, but what I was looking at was I had previously written about the Bracero program um in the United States it was a f- the Mexican farm labor agreement during World War II um and how 
the United States and Mexico had an agreement to bring over laborers to work in the agricultural industry while, while Americans were going abroad to fight the war. Um, from that, I wanted to look at um, Mexican civil rights in the farm labor industry um, and how it transitioned to... It all started, I think, with the the conversation and rhetoric of build the wall and you know, no immigrants. And while doing my research in the Bracero program, it was interesting to me that there is this rhetoric and narrative of let's kick these farm laborers out, these Mexicans out, when for decades we have been inviting them in, whether legally or there is a need for them illegally um, to supply laborers. Um, but there's this whole notion that it's anti-immigration, except we kind of need them and we want to bring them in. Um, and then you have families who are legal or second generations who are also getting into the farm labor industry who are fighting for um, labor rights and civil rights in um, the farm industry, but also mm -hmm. in other industries. So ultimately what I ended up narrowing my topic on was the, um, the Valley Migrant League um, in uh, what was it? <laughs> was the Willamette Valley, right? Yeah, but it okay. was um, specifically uh, Woodburn, Oregon. Uh-huh. I think that's right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember. I always get like Woodburn and, and, and Woodward, or I always get the city mixed up. But um, it wasn't specifically Woodburn, but it was basically like r the surrounding Salem kind of area and how different um, organizations work together to support um, – the civil rights movement and continue it was it ended up being continuing the civil rights movement through the 70s uh the late 60s and 70s um for mexican americans uh yeah okay yeah um so i uh what so to to get that argument and to show your um well to show how you did your research like right. what type of research did you do so i went to the oregon historical society so first i started with secondary sources and i was looking at what has been written on the bracero program what has been written on the civil rights movement um in the united states for mexican americans and then i went to um and then i found some books on individuals but also on the valley migrant league specifically um which was an organization that has a long history, not really a long history, but a history in Oregon that was started by some um, white Americans who sympathized with the Mexicans who started the, the program to aid them and help them. Um, so I started with secondary sources, but then as I, you know, when I'm researching civil rights, I'm getting continued, like there's so many secondary sources on um, the civil rights movement in the United States for Mexican Americans. Mm -hmm. And it primarily focused on California and Texas. There were some, um, some books on Oregon, but it mostly focused on the later part of the Bracero program in Eastern Washington and Eastern Oregon, because that's where the sure. agricultural industry. So later are. part of the Bracero program would have been like late forties, early fifties, early fifties, I think. 50s, um, okay. but technically it didn't end till, Oh gosh, maybe sixties. I think. Wow. I think it it gone it went on that for a while on for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So, uh, 
So then I, I was like, okay, I need to find some primary sources. I knew that there was – I wanted to focus on education. I was wondering how education and the emphasis of education or how availability for education affected um, immigrants' lives. Okay. So when I went to the Oregon Historical Society, I started finding um, – in my secondary sources – I'll start with this. In my secondary sources, I started reading about how – a lot of these – I read a book on um, – it's called Brown Not White, and it's about how these Mexicans in Texas were classified as um, white because after desegregation, schools were forced to integrate. Well, Texas school districts, Houston school districts, I guess planned to uh, to consider Mexicans white and integrate them with African Americans so that they mm. could keep their white students segregated. Um, so that sparked my interest in how education affected um, students. And what I found through my research at the Oregon Historical Society was that a lot of the education issues in Oregon happened later. Um, but essentially, these migrant families were migrating and following the work available in the indi agricultural industry. And... Um, these programs provided education opportunities primarily for the adults okay. and the parents so that they could get out of that rut of the industry um, that was becoming mechanized and also um, new technologies as far as like seed manipulation and all of that was creating less and less jobs for migrant mm. um, agricultural workers. Sure. So these these different programs and opportunities um, and Hispanic um, groups started creating different educational opportunities to not only get their, maybe their GED or finish their high school diploma, but also to get jobs in um, other industries. I, I read a primary article about a man who, um, there had been some backlash on these, on these programs um, in educating these people because they were taking them out of the industry um, and that was leaving holes in the industry was the argument. But one one piece of evidence that I found was that one of one man who didn't speak English, they found a way for him to actually become the owner of a uh, farm. Wow. So okay. he was also, he was staying within the system but also employing mm -hmm. um migrant workers now it didn't just specify mexican there were some russian um agricultural workers and stuff too but basically what i found was that um the aim was to educate the adults so that they could expand into new career ventures but also provide a way for them to settle down in an area um and then provide a way for their kids to also stay in school because sure. with these families when they're migrating following the, the the work they're constantly pulling their kids out of schools and moving them into new schools and every time that happened i mean not every time but what i found a lot was that these kids were being bullied and picked on and faced racism and then they would just drop out and not go then join the uh the agricultural industry and then continue that sure. cycle so the idea was to provide educational opportunities um for these families and kids to kind of expand and 
progress, I guess. Mm-hmm. What, what I found so, in, I mean, that's such a fascinating topic. It's so topical today, too, right? Sorry for rambling. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I, I, um, you and I, I don't feel like we ever got a chance to really flesh out our papers together. So this right. is fun for me uh-huh. to listen to, you know, how you, you know, the, your process. Um, for me, I know taught we because we were sitting right next to each other in class, mm-hmm. you know, both of these times, and you and I having a lot of different conversations, and it's funny how. I think both of our topics started so broad and then, and then we narrowed the focus, narrowed the focus, narrowed the focus, narrowed the focus until the point where you settled on education specifically in the Valley, in that Valley. Right. Um, So was that just because of a limited amount of, you know, primary sources? Like where were you, like what type of documents were you discovering? Like, were you finding most of these like, you know, kind of micro histories? Yeah. I use a lot of, um, newspapers a lot of newspapers yeah which i didn't really want to rely on but i had to use what was available Oh, for sure which shows me that there there's a limited availability of primary sources especially concerning this topic Mm -hmm. so i there was a ton of different articles in the oregonian um and and they did you know they did Expose some racism in these articles, which I thought was great. But what would have been nice was to have these first hand accounts. Yes. Um, and I didn't get to explore any oral histories, but it would be interesting to see if there were maybe oral histories of people or um, people who were adults during this time or maybe yeah. children in this time. For sure. I um, think that's, that's such a hard um, – I think when they points out the need for – oral histories and the work that like, you know, right. Dr. Sinclair and like, and you're, you're helping her with, you know, with, with their own, like, um, oral history projects in, in preserving Vancouver. that, preserving that history. Did we say you know, Woodburn? History. You said Woodburn. Yeah. It is Woodburn. Okay. It is Woodburn. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, and wh- what I want to say about oral history was, is that, you know, historically, you know, in other classes, when we've used primary sources, a lot of times they're, uh, like diaries and stuff. Mm-hmm. Nobody keeps diaries anymore. Yeah. I mean, you might have like a blog somewhere. Yeah. But I mean, how many people are actually blogging? Do you have a blog? No. But you have an oral blog with I do. this. I have a podcast. Right. So yeah. which I think with the 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 expansion of of different media, I think with podcasts and with oral histories, there are different ways for people to Different primary sources for people mm-hmm. to use. Yeah. Um, if somebody were to go back and listen to our podcast, they would get an understanding of what the world in Vancouver, Washington may have been like in 2018. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think that with oral histories, I think that they're a good resource um, for any time in most recent history. And I think mm-hmm. in the future, they'll be super helpful. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and then, uh, so I guess... For those um, who are listening, who we're using the term secondary and primary source. Oh, good call. And we probably should, you know, give a brief definition of what those are and why the distinction is, you know, important. I think probably the distinction between the two will come out, you know, in their definitions. But like a secondary source is, you know, a is a scholarly article, um, a book written that's peer reviewed, um, something that's gone through several processes of revision, being critiqued. Uh, for inaccuracies by other experts in the field and then um, you know then ends up being published after it's gone through you know a very rigorous um, process and then a primary source is something that was written by people who were in you know in the, in the area living during the time were um, 
of of your of your particular topic. And I think um, what what you what a lot of people experience of who've taken you know like a history a hundred level history course in their undergraduate will mostly be dealing primarily with secondary sources. So I think there's a big misconception with what happens like with more advanced history courses is that you everybody thinks well you're just we're just reading a history textbook and then we're writing stuff about it but there's so much more that goes into the historical writing process in terms of gathering primary sources and starting with not really an, like you kind of have a topic that you want to talk about but then you let the primary sources guide you yes. into what you are going to write about absolutely and in looking in trying to rem- you're never going to remove bias completely right. obviously you're going to you're going to read things in a particular way of the time in which you are living right and, and interpret it that particular way. But when you start to find multiple and more and more primary sources that are saying the same things from different people of different classes of that particular time, where right. you've got the Oregonian saying something and then another um, saying one thing, and then you've got another publication that's you know echoing the exact same sentiment. And so you start to kind of build um, you know what was really happening in that particular time. What were the what were the social what were the kind of the under social undertones of that time? And that's really what I think the historical process allows to be fleshed out. Right. Well, I, w- I wanted to add that, you know, you were talking about how these primary sources narrows topics. Mm-hmm. Um, what we find is holes in the narrative, in, yes. the, in the story, in the historical story told. We are finding spaces that maybe our secondary sources haven't focused on, mm-hmm. and haven't written on. Yep. Um, and I think that that's one that I found was the emphasis on education. Yes. I kept reading that over and over. I kept reading that the um, civil rights movements for Mexican-Americans focused on A, B, or C, and education. Mm-hmm. And it was very broadly mentioned. And then that's what made me focus on education. And I will mention also that I did find... Um, primary sources that I used were court documents on different um, civil suits Mm -hmm. regarding education. Sure. um, But also uh, presidential speeches by Lyndon B. Johnson. Okay. Because he did uh, that his administration had the Economic Opportunity Act Mm -hmm. which federally funded programs that aided poor the poor but Mm -hmm. also um agricultural workers was that particular program or i guess i guess you call it a program was that part of the broader war against poverty yes okay yeah yeah so i mean obviously there's a target on there's a war on poverty yeah um and the vml the valley migrant league was funded through that federal funding okay um so using his speech um, kind of on a national level mm-hmm. to see what the goals of the federal funding was for, yeah. um, and education was mentioned. I think an, um, one a primary source that you used because you had you sent it to me and had me kind of try to interpret it too. Yeah, was that um, I, it wasn't legislation per se, but it oh. was it was like an argument. It was a so some legislation was proposed in the Oregon State Legislature. Right. And there was a senator who was critiquing it based on X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And then figuring, and then I think those kind of documents is where we really get to see um, 
I think those are fantastic primary sources right. because they really show the legal language that is being used. Right. And if there's certain words that are, you can kind of interpret as being, um, uh, in, in, interpret in certain ways mm-hmm. that kind of help, you know, sh- you know, shed light on a particular, you know, social movement or right. a particular, you know, um, topic about race or how race is conceptualized during right. that time in, in, th- you know, kind of reading between the lines of those right. and reading what Dr. Peabody always calls reading against the grain for of sure. a particular document. For sure. And, um, so I, I always find that to be so fascinating. Well, and comparatively, you know, you look at Johnson's speeches and his his rhetoric, rega- rhetoric regarding legislation and, mm-hmm. and, and federal funding. And then on the more local level, you get to see kind of how that transfers yes. to a state level uh-huh. and then how that's interpreted and criticized and looked at re- regarding funding. Okay. You know. Did you notice any difference between how um, Mexican migrant workers were written about, talked about in Oregon versus, like, say, Texas? Was there a ma- market difference? In secondary or primary? Either. <laughs> um, I don't think so. Okay. What you had happen that I didn't find later until I, w- I went to, uh, there was a guest speaker that um, Dr. Mercier had brought who did research on... Um, agricultural laborers in uh, laborers in uh, Yakima. Okay. And he came and he had mentioned how um, because of the, the decreasing available work in Texas, mm-hmm. um, there was kind of the streamline of, of, um, of, of information being transferred through laborers and families and friends yeah. and the work migrated up, to Oregon and Washington as it became less and less in the southern states. Sure. And as there those states, like, there was, you know, more racism and mistreatment of those people, The those who moved up north would, you know, talk to their friends and family down south and say, hey, come to Oregon, there's more work and they're a little less racist. Okay. Um, so you had that migration up mm-hmm. north and then even some family members and friends from Mexico would come up into Oregon and completely bypass Texas and Oregon. Okay. Yeah. I thought I always thought that was interesting that That is interesting. Just by word of mouth people were migrating up north mm-hmm. for opportunity. Yeah. Um I think you should talk about your topic, dude, cuz you I think your my availability in primary research was I what from what I found kind of limited like i said if i had a year i could have gone to U of O. I think there were some primary yeah. sources there um i think uh i called the woodburn historical society or i emailed the guy and he said he would give me some sources and then he never gave me sources of course so yeah i think if i had time to actually go down there in the middle of this 16 week chaos of writing this <laughs> right <laughs> chaos was the right word original for it too you know, paper based on primary documents. If I would have had a year to do that and travel, mm-hmm. I think I would have had more primary sources available um, because I'm writing about a city that I'm not, um, that's maybe like an hour or two away. Sure. Um, but yours was more local. I think, yeah. I think you had more sources available locally. So I, I did. Yeah. yeah. But, um, so my topic was, um, Hawaiians who were brought in as laborers in the fur industry during the uh, fur trade era spanning from about the late 1700s 
really late 1700s, like 1790s, mm-hmm. up through about the mid-1800s. And there was a long, long process about how this occurred, right. differences in the companies that they were hired to do. Primarily, it was the Hudson's Bay Company. Majority of my primary sources came from Hudson's Bay Company employees. Right. Um, and so, where I started was this. I mean, Fort Vancouver is obviously in our in our back is in our backyard. Right. I mean, we, there's so much about Fort Vancouver. We just it's in our lives. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't you can't know Vancouver without knowing the fort, right? right. At least some history b- about it. And <clears throat> so, like with where I started with my um, with my uh, with my topic was a lot more broad than where it ended up. Right. You know, I wanted to focus on the fur trade era uh, as a you know as, on a broader sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, I, it, it ended up being focused mostly on the Hudson's Bay Company specifically. Right. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to show push and pull factors of what um, push and pull factors of why Hawaiians chose to come here, mm-hmm. and being able to do that, I needed. It's really hard because the whole. This is where the major. This is where I relied more on secondary sources than I did on primary, mm-hmm. and that was because I don't have access to Hawaii. And this is where, if I was a master's student or a PhD student, and right. I had several years to to work this out, I could go to Hawaii and go through the or Hawaiian Historical Society, right. um, find you know try to find um, you know actual primary sources. But many of of pre-contact Hawaiians before the mission missionaries really showed up were. Um, most of pre-contact Hawaii did not have a, a formal written language. Mm-hmm. So most of it was interpreting um, is archaeological work right. that has been done after pre-contact in trying to interpret what, you know, and what dances, you know, what dances mean mm-hmm. in a social context. Mm-hmm. What does certain, because it was a very rigid hierarchical system. Yeah. Pre-contact in Hawaii. So like how, what does that say about the, about the, um, about the social, about the society and culture in Hawaii, and why were people why why would people be wanting to move out of Hawaii? Right. So, like, what are what were the social and economic conditions mm-hmm. in Hawaii that fort that pushed people out? Yeah. So, trying to really find that, you had to kind of read between the lines of a Oof. lot of um, uh, archaeological work, and that's right. where Fort Vancouver's archives came in handy. Mm-hmm. That was one of they the do a lot of archaeological work there. <laughs> they do. They yeah. do a ton, and there was a lot of things uncovered by archaeologists at Fort Vancouver that mm-hmm. were also that were of uh of like monuments that were kept in like Hawaiian residences oh, wow. that were similar to stuff that was found in Hawaii. Uh-huh. So like you could see like a lot of that culture transferred. Right. But then there's but then there's also this kind of cultural blending where they um start to identify them a lot of the a lot of the Hawaiians <laughs> at Fort Vancouver started to um began to see themselves not as really Hawaiians anymore. They're part of their own culture. Oh. And right, it right, right. It wasn't necessarily just like, yeah, we're Hawaiians, but they started to identify more themselves as Kanakas. That's what they call themselves, Kanakas, is uh-huh. like the people. But they that almost became an identity over time. A new identity. A new identity wow. over time. So, And especially that became even more prevalent once, they, um, once the United States annexed the territory and right. the, the border between what was now britain in canada yeah and uh the united states right and a lot of the hawaiians moved with the with the hudson's bay company uh north of the north of the border mm-hmm. in canada mm-hmm. and there's a lot of uh ethnic enclaves even today on a lot of the islands outside of british columbia of oh, wow. former of descendants of these fur trade laborers mm-hmm. 
So another area where I was able to um, get a lot of good primary research was on online databases yeah. through Hawaiian, through University of Hawaii. Oh, okay. So I contacted the university and I said, hey, like, what do you guys have as like a, you know, a database I can use? And I was, they were very helpful. Really? And they, they were able to get me a whole bunch of missionary. That's awesome. Um, missionary writings of the time mm-hmm. and interpreting that in terms of how they wrote about. Um, so like the... P- where I ended up forming a lot of my argument about push and pull factors and understanding why Hawaiians may have wanted to move was analyzing the differences between how fur trade, the fur trade employee, the Anglo fur trade employees wrote about Hawaiians right. versus how missionaries wrote about Hawaiians and why they're in like, there's obviously a major difference in mm-hmm. terms of the relationship with Hawaiians. For sure. So in, for example, like the missionaries wanted to convert Hawaiians. So right. they saw them almost as subjects, right? And wrote about them in a lot more racial, um, a lot more r- in a lot more uh, in a m- lot more, you know, the other. They're viewed inter- as the other. Viewed as the other. They're ben- they're beneath us. They right. need to be brought out of the you know primordial. Mind. Right. Whereas there's still some of that prevalent. Uh-huh. There's there's still some of that prevalent in the way you know McLaughlin and other Hudson's Bay Company employees wrote about the Hawaiians. Mm-hmm. But it's more about on a transactional basis, right? More of like an employee-employer right, relationship, right. and so they don't necessarily see Hawaiians as, um, you know, inherently inferior. They right. see them as their employees. Yes, at the lower levels of our company, but, but they're, they're contributing. They're, they're contributing something. to our company, and right. therefore they're they're lifted at a high, you know slightly higher status. For sure, I'm not going to say that they were treated perfectly, right. Perfectly fine, but that's where my that's where my analysis really came into is that one most of the Hawaiians that were moving out of out of Hawaii and mm-hmm. into the Pacific Northwest were from the lower rungs of Hawaiian culture, right. Um, even in pre-contact, these families and the men that were leaving were people who have very little prospects Interesting. In adva- in, you know, for advancement in a yeah. very rigid um, Hawaiian culture. Right. And once the missionaries came in, they gave up, around the 1820s, they mm-hmm. gave up trying to um, convert the masses right. because they said, like, these people are beyond help. <laughs> so they started, um, in, their wor- in their words... Right, right. Like you should read some of the stuff that these missionaries oh, wrote I about bet. Hawaiians. It was, it's awful. Right. Um, it's hard to. So historians shouldn't be making that kind of like normative judgments about right. the past. But right. like in today's context, the things that they wrote about them right. was uh, it's appalling. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> but so they started focusing more on, um, on uh, on the on the upper echelons of mm-hmm. like the chieftain class yeah. of of Hawaii. They focused on converting them. Converting them. Okay. And they were successful in doing so. Interesting. Um, and then the chiefs were able to use Christianity to mm-hmm. further marginalize the lower, um, the lower class. What was called the uh, the Mahayana class. I and have a question, real quick. Yeah. Were the chieftains like using like Christianity and and God as an as as a um, explanation of their role in that society? Do you know? No. Oh, okay. No, no, no. They were still um a lot of the chieftains used Christianity more to uh acquire land and privatize land. Oh, okay. Um then it was used as a justification to adhere to their um Right. because they didn't really need to do that. The right. the lower classes in Hawaii were already pretty much 
adhering to social hierarchy sure. yeah. because it just that's the way they grew up even before Christians showed yeah. up there. So they already believed that the chieftains were already in their own uh, in their okay. own religions gotcha. already had or already ordained from their deities. Right. So there wasn't really Perfect. a need for them to use Christianity to further justify their place in Hawaiian society. Right. I have a second question. Yeah. So was it the idea of the missionaries to convert top like was their idea like a top down kind of model like so yes. if they can okay a, a, after they had very little success um like tangible success in terms of what they you know how they um how hawaiians went about determining success of conversion was how many people were coming to us like a sunday mat like to weekly right services and it they could not they were not getting very many mm-hmm. of the lower classes to show up mm-hmm. so they're like well we're going to try a different approach right we're going to try to do a top-down right uh, conversion Did strategy. It work? Uh, it seemed to over time. Okay. A lot of the um, a lot of the uh, the lower class really never you know never really took okay. never really took to it. All right. Um, and especially even less now as even not less now but less once Hawaii became annexed by the United States and yeah. that whole process mm-hmm. became a lot of the lower classes became even increasingly marginalized under American colonial mm-hmm. rule. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, became very disenfranchised with anything Western culture. Right. Um, disillusioned is mm-hmm. more of more the, the word I should use. Um, but so, yeah, that was kind of my point of uh, my point of analysis was because they lacked their own written language. Right. Trying to give them a voice. Okay. Through the voices of the people who were interacting with. Them. Right. And I also used. um recruitment records from the Hudson's Bay Company. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, the Hudson's Bay Company, other than uh, more than the Pacific uh, Fur Company and the American Fur Company, kept such detailed records of movement. Right. So there was, you know, there, and it shows it was very economically driven over time as the fur trade industry started to wind down mm-hmm. the and the lumber industry started to increase. The need for, for labor became more and more right. more of like general labor okay so that's where um and after the epidemics of in the 18 the early 1830s which wiped out a lot of the native population mm-hmm. there was a huge void of um there was a huge void for labor right so in with the increase of uh of trade between you know of hawaii as a stop that's kind of a stop port between the pacific northwest china and yeah. england yeah hawaii was perfectly situated to be a um, one a port for uh, commerce to right. s- to s- to stop and be as like kind of like a middle like a middle area, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then also as a source of, of general labor. labor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you you started with looking at push and pull factors. Um, I'm wondering if there. So we talked about gaps and holes in the history. Yeah. Did you find those that helped you narrow any aspect of your argument or research or paper? Uh, yes. So some of the holes that I, f- that I found were definitely in the, in terms of secondary literature, mm-hmm. um, I f- found a lot of holes in the actual economic, um, economic sphere. Okay. So trying to look at, uh, what were, imp- what were being, what was being imported mm-hmm. and exported out of Hawaii okay. during this time in yeah. using that combined with primary sources that I had that showed um, recruitment levels right. and then matching those up together. Were there any Hawaiian primary sources that you found? No. No? Interesting. Oh, well, other than archaeological work. Right, 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 right. Yeah. I wonder... 
I wonder again if we had more time and more of availability. Oh, there would have definitely. I think there definitely would be. Right. I don't know if it would necessarily be primary from like 1790. Right. But probably post 1840s. Right. Like there were several um, Hawaiians that stayed, that settled and lived around Hudson's Bay until its closure. Right. And. Actual Hudson's Bay or the fort? Sorry, the fort. Okay. Sorry, I should have said the fort. Yeah. That lived around the fort. Right. After they retired from Hudson's Bay Company mm-hmm. um, uh, employee, they settled and created their own land. Uh, mm-hmm. The Hudson's Bay Company allowed them to settle between the Cowlitz Farm and um, Fort Vancouver. Right. And were part of the everyday, you know, they would be hired, you know, if the Hudson's Bay Company needed them to be like a swine herd, mm-hmm. um, they would bring in... Um, uh, they bring in one of these you know people on a temporary basis, and he would. You know, that's how you'd kind of you know they'd fund themselves, and they that's how that identity really starts to form. Are the ones who chose to stay here after their contracts right. were up, and you see a lot of movement from like so the original like contracts were three to five years, mm-hmm. and after that those at that original enlistment they would return to the islands and then come right back. Oh wow! Um, so there was a lot of back and forth movement right. too. So yeah, there's a huge gap in terms of trying to find primary literature specifically from Hawaiians. Mm-hmm. And I think if I had more time, that would be one area I would like For to, sure. to study. Absolutely. So so this massive project of chaos that we took on, how do you think that that pushed you forward in being somebody who studies history? Just to be able to... Um, look at a variety of different primary documents mm-hmm. and being able to drive a story from them. Right. And what I... Yeah. Sorry. No, you're good. Um, one thing, you know, we did take that 100-level course, the same one, mm-hmm. but at different times with Fountain, and I did appreciate his use of primary yes. sources. Yes. And he encouraged you to use primary sources. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that... I kn- Again, I've said before on this podcast that Switching from an English major to a history major, I was very insecure. Um, but his class was the fir- was one of the first classes I took in my first semester at WSU. So I I had never really, you know, being a high school dropout and all of that, I never experienced using primary sources or analyzing primary sources that way at all. Yeah. So I think that that is one element that I fell in love with mm-hmm. was reading these primary documents from a time and now putting that into this broader context yeah. and instantly fell in love with that. So to develop that skill um, as a student for the next three years um, was always challenging, but yeah. always fun to grow and and learn a new way to either navigate through your bias or to um, interpret something differently with now more knowledge. The more classes you took, the more understanding you had of global history or regional history, the better I became, and I assume you Mm -hmm. because you're a genius, but you became to, you know, it became easier analyzing these documents. Sure, definitely. I think that's a great point. But I also think, you know, with your topic, especially, and I guess with mine, these limited primary sources that we had um, without this, this time and growth through our education to do what we did that last semester with our limited sources Mm -hmm. would have been way more difficult if we had done it earlier on. So it's a good thing they put it on for your senior year. Definitely. Um, 
but the interpretation and the ability, um, the the growth in skills and analyzing and interpreting, I think, helped us oh, in definitely, the end. Definitely, yeah. I think you. Um, it makes you such a so much more appreciative of the secondary sources you then read oh, on your own. Yeah, because especially then, or you start reading secondary, like you say, you're on a project, right. and you start reading secondary sources that are saying the same things that you're noticing in your primary documents and right. you're like, okay, this guy really did his research because sure. I'm finding what is being said. Like they're matching like the secondary source right. is matching what I'm finding in my primary research. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, in, in, I think most historians, you know, adhere to almost like a very scientific, um, process in doing, sure. in, in doing that. And it's not just something that, you know, I have an opinion. So therefore I'm going to go and search out specific documents. That right. Prove what I want the show that I want. And I'm going to, read them the way that I want to read them right and then just throw it out there and make some money like that's just not how yeah that's just not how this how the historical process works and even when you try it you get kind of taught a lesson so I think that that's where I came in with my topic with education I had read about the way that these kids were exploited in Houston Texas Mm -hmm. so when I looked at Oregon I wanted to look at kids and education and how kids and 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 these programs emphasize the education in kids. That's what I came into it looking for. Mm-hmm. But my primary sources, my evidence showed that the emphasis later in the later 60s and early 70s, the focus was on adult education, which inherently affected the ch- the children yeah. and their education. For sure. So it's interesting that, you know, I came in with one idea thinking, okay, this is how these children were affected in Houston. I'm sure there's a way that they were affected in the same in the same manner in Oregon. Let's let's see how that, mm-hmm. that was done. And then the more I investigated, I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, yes, the kids were dropping out and they were uh, um, experiencing racism, but the the funding and the programs were designed and designated for adults. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. And that's one thing I wanted to mention was that is it from the scientific perspective we do call it primary and secondary sources but we also call it evidence yes we have a hypothesis we have an argument now we need evidence to support that and sometimes that evidence changes what we initially thought for sure i mean i i think i mean i started with a completely different to- i don't remember this but i started with a completely different topic i think i remember it but i was going to ask you yeah. what did you start i was going to talk about the the, the seek um Right, the, the Sikh population in Astoria. Yes, and after contacting um, different people in Astoria, the people at the you know people at the Astorian Library, yeah. um, it, at the Astorian Times, the newspaper there, and I couldn't find anything. Right, there was like there's been one person who's written on them. It there's not a lot of evidence for it. Right, and it's just like you know I'm I can't like I have like I've studied the Sikhs in India right. like I've wrote a long paper about the Sikhs in India For so sure. everything I'm going to try to do with a lack of evidence yes. is going to be bringing my own bias into my own research and I'm like I can't I, I can't do that For I got to sure. switch I got to switch topics right so and the mature ability to recognize that this is what I've been talking about mm-hmm. you know you understood like whoa, whoa okay I see what I'm doing and this is kind of a silly comparison but when I wrote that paper on tamales in food history uh, I started with I love pho, Vietnamese mm-hmm. pho soup, and I wanted to write a paper on the history of pho. And, you know, I think that time and availability and resources dictates how we 
we navigate through our choice oh, and topic. Definitely. And I think that that was an example with yours, but you know, we only had 16 weeks to write that paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that, uh, it's kind of the same thing with that food history paper. I think it was like maybe eight weeks. We had like half the semester to write it, mm-hmm. but I started researching, um, pho and what i had found was very limited especially on food history dude there is not a lot written on i don't think there's a lot of people yeah a lot of historians focusing on that right i love it i wish there was more um well you could be more i know i could be more (laughs) i totally should be more um i love goucher and she's freaking awesome and i think she would be down to like work together on something you have great resources available to to you um so she uh so when i looked at I started I the only like broad information that I could find was that it was created when the French colonized Vietnam and it was a mix of cultures and mm. they created the soup and it was v- just very generic and broad and that was all I could find and that dictated me going I have only a certain amount of weeks to finish this and I have to write an eight page paper with primary sources mm-hmm. looking at the history of food I have to find something else to write yeah. about which kind of is a bummer but because I love pho and I would be interested in exploring that French Vietnam relationship and, and the explore and in and, and food, but I had to switch to tamales and there was a ton of stuff written on tamales and I knew kind of general history mm-hmm. about corn in, in um South America. So that's kind of what dictated what I wrote about. But I think you find that in a lot of things, which is kind of a bummer, I think, sometimes. Yeah. Um but I love history. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we think we both do. That's yeah. why, we, why we why we picked it for sure. What else do you have for questions? Well, I guess um, we sort of touched on this. Right. But my last question was, um, how does your topic fit in the broad discussion of race, immigration, and/or yeah. citizenship today? Yeah. You're not just in the United States, but also globally. Right. I know. I know. Our because of access to resources, we picked something um, on our projects that was local right because we could have access to those databases that sure. have a more rich um you know s- uh com- compilation of of uh, primary sources mm-hmm. but do you do you see any with your topic um mm-hmm. do you see any of the same rhetoric being used um to try to marginalize his you know uh, the latino community in Mex- in oregon today or just i guess globally it's like some of this a lot of the same arguments like you saw in he like how they were trying to structure the education system in houston right um and then do you see any of that like do you see any of that today or or okay. last thing uh well let's just let's just do that i gotta i gotta follow up okay um oh that's a tough question i mean i there is so much negative towards latinos and i mean even if you're not an immigrant and you're a citizen and you're a legal citizen you're facing racism Mm -hmm. and i think it's been kind of there's this resurgence in um the acceptance of that racism um today uh but as far I, i just my overall argument and and the way that i viewed um agricultural laborers is that People don't understand the historical context and the notion that there was a program that that welcomed and initiated the migration from mm-hmm. Mexico to the United States. Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question is that 
do you think a lot of this has to do with just the lack of the knowledge of of the past history of Mexican migration I think so. to the United States? I absolutely yeah. think so, and I think that that's a large part of what I've been trying to argue in in several papers that I've written about immigration from Mexico is that you have these people who are coming from, and I've written about like kind of the the poverty that poverty that they came from mm-hmm. that gave them, and I wrote in my Bracero paper. Um, Basically, like Mexico is very machismo and it's a a patriarchal country Mm -hmm. and and the men are are looked to to be their providers. And when you don't have uh, economic opportunities and the United States is coming to you and saying we have options here, then you come here, then you experience American culture, then you experience just new. I mean. You're escaping poverty, essentially, and you're experiencing having money for the first time, and you're going to want to provide that for your family. So I just feel like in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, the United States created this. It created its own pull factor. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think today that those pull factors still exist. Oh, definitely. And I think probably even more so. So I think that that is, for kind of a broad overview, I think that that is kind of a, a, a point that has continued. Yeah. What about you as far as maybe Hawaiians still? Well, I think um, it explains why there's such uh, a Polynesian culture on the West Coast of the United States. I right. think it starts with this early migration about the time of European, of British, you know, British ex- global expansion and how that affects um, how more broad processes affect affect regional or sub-regional, um, you know, social and economic processes about how the need for lumber and to the fund the British machine right, right. affects my migration out of Hawaii to the Pacific Northwest and how that is still seen today. So it just shows this big, long historical process that migration is not just something that happens in a vacuum. It happens for very specific reasons. Right. A lot, a lot of times tied to ec- economics. And But then what does that do when... So economics is such a, you know, uh, a lightning rod for other, other sorts of things like nationalism absolutely and it i think it it, that economic pressures put more and more stress on especially once the the birth of the nation state right and what in what is ours this land is now ours so now you're coming here and you're trying to take what's ours for sure and you you see like well like hawaiians were here before americans were right and um and then they were pushed out by the american government right because um well one they were needed by the british for economic reasons mm-hmm. once the fur trade and then the british lumber trade ended it went to more agriculture which then a lot of the white settlers were yep. worried about hawaiians you know taking land and competing with them agriculturally right in the agricultural markets so they you know they they wanted to classify hawaiians um, as as the same way as natives were mm-hmm. uh, were were tre- um, were classified, they weren't going to be given citizenship by the United wow. States. So they were either told to move to Canada, go back to Hawaii, or go somewhere. But you're right. not going to you or go to the reservations because many of them oh, married married God. within native populations. Right. The ones that settled here, native married uh, Native American women, right. and and some of them were put onto Indian reservations. Wow! So and like you said, they settled here. First. Yeah. 
I think in your summary right there, that also relates to kind of my analysis of Mexican immigration, mm-hmm. you know, how economies and economics dictates that migration. Sure. But also there's other push and pull factors. Mm-hmm. Well, that was fun, dude. That was fun. Sorry it went such a long time, but I think we kind of got on a rabbit hole and For sure. we love we talking w- about history. So. Yeah, we do. Um, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. Um, we have uh, some popping issues with the mic, so we're going to end it here and now. But um, remember to follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, subscribe, like, and share. Um, <laughs> share it with your friends if you think they'd enjoy it. Um, and... Thank you, as always. Yes, thank you. Bye. Bye.